0: invited, or I should say you are not all invited. Today's merely a continuation of last week's scene with Jesus and the crowd on Solomon's porch at the temple. Our theme is the same as last week, except in today's verses, our Lord deals pointedly with his power to lay down his life, reclaim his life, and who gave him that power. As for our Pharisee friends, they are not a fan They also ask him the big question, which, as always, he answers them pointedly. So let's catch up with uh, what the Lord's doing in uh, verse 17 of John chapter 10 and hear God's word. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord." I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It's not for good work that you are, we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? If I'm not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at the first, and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no miracle. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. And thus ends the reading of God's word. So once again, Jesus is in the temple area, stirring it up. Um, It's called Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Colonnade, uh, not because it actually is the, the porch built by Solomon's work crew, but rather a memoriam of Solomon as an act of public relations by the late, at this time in the chronology of Jesus' life, Herod the Great. Um, It's winter. It's the Feast of Dedication, what we know as Hanukkah, um, which occurred after the Maccabean Revolt, when uh, the Jews rebelled against Antiochus Epiphanius, Antiochus IV, who was trying to uh, essentially Hellenized the Greeks by force. In other words, make them Greek-like, right? And, of course, the rebellion was led by uh, their great man of power, Judah the Hammer, the eldest of the five Maccabean brothers. And in God's providence, after years of guerrilla warfare, the Jews were successful And of course, it was the Maccabeans who uh, the zealots at the time of Jesus were patterning themselves after. They figured if God did it for the Maccabeans, he'll do it for us with the Romans. But as we know, that was not the case. Back to the text. Jesus set forth the reality that it is the Father who gives him the sheep. He tells us from the very start of today's message that he has power power to die and power to live again. He has that power from God the Father. Jesus has the power because unlike all the higher liens, he is not only the second Adam, as Saint Paul calls him, but because he is the faithful son, unlike the first Adam, and for that matter, unlike the dark robed men. It is such metaphysical and moral statements such as these that drive the Jews to a frenzy, except, except, some are starting to be persuaded by his arguments and even begin to argue with those who oppose the methods of Jesus. As always, Jesus refers to the fact that not all of them are his sheep, but some of them may be because they're starting to defend him, right? Talk about divide and conquer. Obviously, those who are leaning toward belief in what Jesus says could possibly be, horror of horrors, sheep who want to follow the shepherd. This, of course, means that division now clearly and publicly exists within the ranks of the dark lords with their black robes. And if so, they will have to relinquish their dark robes and their pomp, and their circumstance as scribes and Pharisees and lawyers. Why? Because there's a cost to discipleship, a cost then and a cost now. This is getting serious, but our Lord Jesus Christ is taking it to the limit. Verse 29, again the predestination theme that we covered in chapters 3 and chapter 6. Also, in verse 29 is the eternal security verse that we covered before. Once given, never lost. The doctrine of eternal security, or the perseverance of the saints, as Calvin and others called it. This doctrine believed by many Baptists, Reformed Episcopalians, Lutherans, Presbyterian, Reformed churches, and the great Catholic theologians, Augustine and Thomas Aquinas, from long ago. Peter also, in 1 Peter 1, 1.5, said that we are kept by the power and will of God. The Jews, of course, are not a fan. Neither is the modern evangelical church. Well, there's their face, and so be it unto them. Jesus also sets forth the reality that they, the Pharisees, are not his sheep. And they, of course, are not a fan, which is odd, because they say they do not want to follow him, but still, you have a sense that they are still fascinated and drawn to him. And everywhere Jesus goes, they follow him. It's kind of crazy, right? Jesus sets forth the reality that him and his father are one, in verse 30. Definitely not a fan, not only in the sense that rattles the Jews of then and now, but equally rattles the Muslims. But this and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, of course, points to the triune nature of our God. In other words, the Trinity set forth in our creeds, the Apostles' Creed, Athanasian Creed, Nicene Creed, and Chalcedonian Creed. These were written long after the confrontation between Jesus and the dark-robed men to settle the confusion once and for all who Jesus is in relation to God the Father as well as the Holy Spirit. Back to the text, Jesus begins looking, excuse me, the Jews begin looking for sticks and stones and of course they want to break Jesus' bones. It's nothing new. This time they have called him a blasphemer and it goes back and forth as always, yet our Lord pushes the conflict even further by focusing on his relation with his and their and our heavenly father and then gives them a theology lesson and perhaps us in terms of the implication of authority. And this is interesting because at one point in today's scripture reading, Jesus says something quite profound. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I said ye are gods? Now what on earth does that mean? Exactly what it says. The phrase is found in both Psalm 82, verse 6, and in Exodus 22, verse 28. The rulers are called gods. John Calvin, the magisterial reformer, wrote 500 years ago that, and I quote, Scripture gives the name of gods to those on whom God has conferred an honorable office. He whom God has separated to be distinguished above all others, is far more worthy of this honorable title. Hence it follows that they, the Pharisees, are malicious and false expounders of Scripture who admit the first, that they should be called gods, but take offense at the second, that Jesus is the Son of God. They admit that they are gods, but they're salty about what Jesus says. And of course the passage which Christ quotes is Psalm 82, verse 6, I have said you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Where God expostulates with the kings and judges of the earth who tyrannically abuse their authority and power for their own sinful passions, for oppressing the poor, and for every evil action. He reproaches them that, unmindful of him from whom they receive so great dignity, they profane the name of God. Christ applies this to the case in hand, that they receive the name of gods, meaning the Pharisees, because they are God's ministers for governing the world. For the same reason, scripture calls the angels gods, because by them the glory of God beams forth on the world. We must attend to the mode of expression to whom the word of God was addressed. For Christ means that they were authorized by an undoubted command of God. Hence, we infer that empires do not spring up at random, nor by the mistakes of men, but that they were appointed by the will of God, because he wishes that political order should exist among men, and that we should be governed by usages and laws. For this reason, Paul says that all who resist the power are rebels against God, because there is no power but what is ordained by God. Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Under the term law, Christ includes the whole doctrine by which God governed his ancient church. For since the prophets were only expounders of the law, the Psalms are justly regarded as an appendage to the law. That the scriptures cannot be broken means that the doctrine of scripture is literally set in stone, end quote. So these are powerful words by John Calvin that go beyond the confrontation between Jesus and the Jews and speak to all authorities then and now, whether church, state, family, heads of schools, and medical boards and hospitals, all governing institutions the world over. Indeed, the psalmist said in Psalm 2, Be wise now, therefore, O you kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. It's a prophetic verse that echoes from the ancient world up to the present and beyond. It is irrevocable. People in authority need to watch themselves. They are not free agents in spite of what they think. If, in fact, as St. Paul says, all authority is ordained by God, if they ignore the words of the Lord Jesus and exercise their authority tyrannically, God will hold them to account. Not just people who name the name of Christ, all people everywhere at all times including today. A few centuries after John Calvin came Matthew Henry, great Bible commentator from three centuries ago here in the States. He wrote, by an argument taken from God's word, Jesus appeals to what was written in their law, that is, in the Old Testament. It is written in Psalm 82, verse 6, I have said you are God's, It is an argument from the less to the greater. If they were gods, much more am I. Observe, number one, how Jesus explains the text, verse 35. He called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken. The word of God's commission came to them, appointing them to their offices as judges, and therefore they're called gods. Exodus 22, verse 28. To some, the word of God came immediately, as to Moses, to others in the way of an instituted ordinance. Magistry is a divine institution, and magistrates are God's delegates, and therefore Scripture calleth them gods. And we are sure that the Scripture cannot be broken, or broken upon, or found fault with. Every word of God is right." and not to be corrected, Matthew 5.18. Second, how Jesus applies it. Much in general is easily inferred that those very rash and unreasonable men who condemn Christ as a blasphemer only for calling himself the Son of God, when yet they themselves called their ruler so, and therefore the Scripture warranted them. But the argument goes further, verse 36, if magistrates were called gods because they were commissioned to administer justice in a nation, say you of him whom the Father has sanctified, thou blasphemest? They, the scribes, Pharisees, lawyers, and rulers of Israel, were constituted for a particular country, city, or nation, but he, meaning Jesus, was sent into the world vested with a universal authority as Lord of all. They were sent too as persons at a distance. Jesus was sent forth as having been from eternity with God. The Father sanctified him, that is, designed him and sent him apart to the office of mediator and qualified and fitted him for that office, sanctifying him as the same as with sealing him, as we studied in John chapter 6, verse 27, a few months back. Further down, Henry writes, If devils who he came to condemn had said so of him, it had not been so strange. But that men who he came to teach and save should say so of him, Be astonished, O heavens! See what is the language of an obstinate unbelief? It does in effect call the holy Jesus a blasphemer. End quote. The Pharisees are always referring to that which is old and ancient in their faith. Jesus replies, so be it. Since you brought it up, let's chat. That's the problem for the Pharisees, scribes, and the lawyers They want to argue the word of God inscripturated with the very word of God incarnated. I believe this is what we moderns call an epic fail. That's like me instructing a world-class bodybuilder how to lift weights. That's like me instructing a UFC champion on how to fight. Or perhaps our CFO, Ken Kramer Sr., instructing the billionaire on how to make money. That's what's called, then and now, a fool. As in, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Or in the modern world, humanistically speaking, not the God I want. But like it or not, then and now, Jesus' answer is the same in verses 35 and 36. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God? Essentially, and this is something we can keep in mind when we deal with the humanists in the modern world who will say that our Christian faith is our crutch, right? We need our Jesus. Well, essentially, these people are placing their bets on the hope, misguided at that, on the hope that there is no God. But they're wrong. As Jesus himself said, What shall a man offer for the price of his soul? We don't know the tone of voice that Jesus had, but the inflection of the words are quite shocking. As in, (laughs) Are you sure about this? As is always the case, the Pharisees are relentless in their obstinacy. Yet, our Lord is still patient and attempts to win them, even after their insults. Another way, by saying in verse 37, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Their response, verse 39, again they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. This scene ends after this verse and Jesus is suddenly back to where his adult story essentially began back in John chapter 2, the Jordan River. John the Baptist told us about the one who was to come and the marvelous things that he would do for the healing of the world both spiritual healing and physical healing, just as the prophets of old had promised. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at the first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no miracle, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So, in spite of all the conflict that we've sadly witnessed for the last seven chapters, we can see the tragedy of Jesus coming to his own, the heartbreak of it due to most having not received him. Yet, we also see without a doubt that as many as the Father hath called by the power of the Holy Spirit, John 3, verse 3, did in fact receive the word of God and the salvation it promises. The Father is throwing a party in heaven, and many, not all, but many, were invited and accepted. Many did not come when called because it was not an effectual calling of God's Spirit. Their minds and hearts were not renewed, thus they were not able to embrace Jesus Christ offered to them in the gospel. Praise God that we are part of that many that John shows us here in this gospel that did receive the word because we were called by the Spirit and like sheep came when we were called. We, by God's grace, will be part of that party. Let's pray. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred... Let us sow love, where there is injury, pardon, where there is discord, union, where there is doubt, faith, where there is despair, hope, where there is darkness, light, where there is sadness, joy, grant that we may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be, underst- to be understood as to understand to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoning. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. In the name of Christ the King, amen.